Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, joining me on Postcards from a Dying World is Stephen Graham Jones, the author of so many books, I can't even go into all of them. But I personally have read The Least of My Scars, Mongrels, and now um, The Only Good Indians, which is um, absolutely in a year of masterpieces, which we've had, 2020 has sucked for a lot of things, but not for horror fiction. (laughs) Um, We have had... Survivor Song, um, Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno Garcia, Mallory was incredible by by Josh Mellerman, and The Only Good Indians just adds to my list of, and we haven't even gotten to The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson coming out. Mm -hmm. What a fucking year. (laughs) This is incredible. Oh man, for sure. And then you had what Grady Hendrix's The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. I have not gotten to that one yet, but I intend to read it. It's really um, good. John Langan's Children of the Fang and Merle and Hightower's Crossroads. Uh, Worse Angels. Like, yeah. what a they're, fucking year. Yeah. So, um, before we get into this particular book and get into spoilers, and we'll give people a warning, um, I want to talk about your background with, mm-hmm. um, with, the, with uh, horror fiction and writing fantastic literature, because I know you don't just write horror. Um, I think, um, and, and being that I'm a big dickhead and I know you're a Philip K. dickhead, um, where did you, how, who, who was your first love in genre fiction? That would be Louis L'Amour in Westerns. I probably started reading him when I was maybe 10, 11. I remember by the time I was 12, I had read all 95 of his Westerns that existed at the time. And then I kept reading them as they kept coming out. And I, I, you know, by the time I was what high school, I'd read them all. And I think he was pretty much through publishing. But it was, uh, so Louis the Moore was the very first, but then the second, my second touch with genre, which I was reading at the same time as all those Westerns, was um, Conan the Barbarian. And to tell you the truth, I was reading um, Robert Jordan doing Conan before I discovered Robert Howard doing Conan. I just, I was just picking up books that had cool covers and I didn't know who was who, you know? And I think I mean, my Jordan's, first Conan was, yeah. was, was, was LeCamp. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I did. The, I had the same thing. I backtracked to Robert Howard yeah. too. But it's great. I mean, all Conan is good Conan, so you can't go wrong, you know. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> but so the westerns was really where you started reading genre fiction. But where did you discover like science fiction and horror? Who, uh, like, you know, the science fiction. I bet science fiction came probably when I was about fourteen, um, with used books my grandma would take me to a used bookstore like once a month or so. And we lived in the country. She'd take me to town and let me get like $2 worth of books, which would be like eight books or something. And I started reading what like science thrillers more than science fiction at first. Um, like just thrillers built on a science fiction premise. Like we're going we're gonna to take Einstein's brain and implant it in eight different people and see what happens. That kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't like, um, we're in space, we're a spacefaring species or any of that. I did get there pretty soon. And I think Arthur C. Clarke was probably, no, it would be Bradbury. Bradbury was probably my first real science fiction I was reading. And then it was Clarke. And then I fell into Le Guin's heinous cycle of novel novellas and 
just blew me away. The, the like anthropological acumen there was so impressive and I'm still completely enchanted and in love with that forever. But then horror, I mean, lots of the science thrillers I was reading had horrific elements, but they would, I wouldn't call them horror. I believe my first horror novel would have been when I was about 16, maybe 17. And it was Stephen King's Tommy Knockers. Oh no, I'm lying. That's not my first horror novel. My first horror novel was Wolfen. And I read Wolfen kind of randomly when I was about 13, Whitley Stryber's Wolfen. And those, those parts were, oh yeah, yeah. And that, the, the, those chapters where the like grandfather wolf, the leader of the pack is, is wearing his head and hearing how he, how he moves through the world. I am still infected with that. That is so compelling to me. So, so well done. But um, aside from the Wolfen, there was no horror for about two years. And then I found Stephen King's Tommyknockers and stayed up all night reading it. And it terrified me. And I still love Tommyknockers. And, you know, I was off to the races then. And I was, I was still reading Westerns, like rereading a lot of the Lemoors, But I started reading a lot of horror as well. Mm -hmm. Now, and one of the reasons why I'm asking you a lot of questions about your early reading mm -hmm. is because um, I think one of your strong suits as a writer is that um, while you have your own voice, like I can feel that you're well read in the genre. I can look at your bookshelf back there and I know, and I appreciate because I'm a um, bibliophile for the genre and I study the genre, like um, both science fiction and horror. I'm one of those nerds who has the encyclopedic knowledge. And mm -hmm. so I appreciate <laughs> when I can feel that um, in, in a writer. And that's one of the reasons why I think um, I appreciate, and even in your more experimental works, like um, of, of, I'm a big fan of um, Least My Scars. I believe that's the title of the, the your Broken River book. That was the book that really cracked it, cracked you for me, like when I read that. And I, I'm not saying that one, I don't see as much of the genre influence because it's way more experimental, but it's there. And I, I find it in your work. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask a lot of questions about that. But no, that's great. I mean, I think, I think it's our duty as writers. You, what you do as a writer is you have your like home field, your home genre, but mm -hmm. you have to go carousing and wandering through other fields. And what happens is like bird, like birds from those other fields stick to your pants leg. And when you come home to where you live, those birds fall off and they grow into strange, weird plants. So you're, you're transplanting DNA from, um, from science fiction, from fantasy, from Westerns, or from nonfiction, from memoir, you're bringing all that DNA home to say horror. And it's finding weird ways to thrive, I think. And it, like new, new DNA is what keeps the genre alive, I think. And it's our job to always be collecting stuff on our pants legs and coming back home. Well, and I think it's that conversation between the, the different eras and the generations that is so interesting. Like I'm not a big fan of A.E. Von Vogt, but I appreciate that A.E. Von Vogt inspired Phil K. Dick to write The Solar Lottery, for example. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I appreciated reading World of Null A, even if I kind of didn't think it was great. Mm -hmm. But I really appreciated reading it because I see the seeds. And I think when, when you hear about, when I hear you talking about that chapter in Wolfen, mm -hmm. um, I, Wolfen was a big influence on me too. I wrote a werewolf novel as well. And mm -hmm. And the Wolfen was one that I like, I had to go back and reread that one and make yeah. sure I wasn't trampling on the same ground, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and yeah. um, I could feel the love when I read Mongrels for, mm -hmm. for all those classics of, mm -hmm. of um, werewolf fiction and Mongrels was, was great. 
And also, I still laugh every time I think of um, stretchy pants or the enemy of werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. But no, I think as when you when you like jump into the werewolf genre or whatever genre, um, of course you have to read every other werewolf thing out there. I know a lot of writers will, if they're writing a um, generational starship um, novel, they'll read everything but generational starship novels because they think they might accidentally let some of that under their page, you know. But um, I, th I I do it the other way. I try to read everything I can in that area. Um, it's like let me think. Um, it's it, you run the risk of say you're going to write a serial killer story, and you get and you don't do any research into the genre, and you say I'm going to put a mastermind cannibal behind bars who is the resource for this investigator, and I'm going to be the first person to ever do that. And everybody everybody's going to like boo you off this page, you know. Um, you've got to know the you've done it. You've got to know the ground that's already been well trod, and then. It's okay to go over that same ground, but you've got a signal to the reader that you know you're doing that. Right, and for me personally, when I wrote, my werewolf novel was, um, and it's through Deadite, uh, Boo Boys of the Wolf, right? And I did, you know, Nazi skinheads and werewolves. And like, so for me, like, I knew I was gonna have an original territory, but there were certain things like, because I was gonna have Nazis and werewolves, I, I had to read Wolf Sour, I had to go mm -hmm. back and check out McCammon's because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't crossing the streams, mm -hmm. but also I wanted to pay tribute. And there are little tributes to, mm -hmm. to Wolf Sour if you're looking closely in there. And Wolfen was one that um, the, the last two I read before working, because I had the same philosophy. I feel like I, I want to pay tribute to those. I want to get mm -hmm. into the headspace of those. And so the last two I read before I wrote my vampire novel mm -hmm. was Wolfen and Wolf Sour were the last two I read. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, going back to it. And, um, but yeah. I agree with you. I think you have to, to try those things and, and you have yeah. to, like, you have to go make sure that you're not, you know, pissing in the same pot, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you are, then, do it consciously. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about like, because Mongrels was, was I think a big transitional work for you. I think it was, uh, it, was it your first hard, well, no, because uh, Demon Theory yeah. had a, a hardcover. Yeah. I should say, I should give a props right now to Jeremy Robert Johnson because um, I was living in Portland and mm -hmm. we were neighbors. We lived two blocks from each other and, um, the first time I ever read your work was um, I was on my way to the library and I saw Jeremy out on a run and I just coincidentally just said, hey, um, give me a name for somebody to look for at the library. <laughs> and he said, Stephen Graham Jones. And so nice. the first time I read Demon Theory, and I don't think I was ready for it, by the way. <laughs> I didn't like it as much as I like yeah. it now. Yeah, but yeah. the first time I ever read your work was Jeremy Robert Johnson out on a run. Yeah, yeah. he ran past me and I said, "Give me a name." <laughs> <laughs> That's cool for him. He was probably in. He talked. Jeremy, I'll talk about that that runner's high you get where you like go to the next level and you're like in a numinous space. And he was probably like tranced out and he just happened to say my name. You know. <laughs> I know, but I owe him. But um, so let's talk about. Um, was Demon Theory your first novel? No, my first novel was Fast Red Road in 2000. And then then I had um, All the Beautiful Sinners, and then Bird is Gone, then Bleeding to Me, and then I think Demon Theory must have been fifth or sixth, and it was in 2006. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to do a ton of career retrospective stuff because I do want to head into Only Good Indian pretty soon. But I do feel that, and I just had to get that out there. I had to give props to Jeremy for that. Um, and uh, uh, I miss seeing Jeremy out on runs because um, <laughs> I used to, uh, that used to happen a lot um, for me. <laughs> And that was a really nice uh, added benefit of living in Southeast Portland. But um, Mongrels was, was, was a big deal for me for reading for you because of reading your work because I felt like there was a comfort between that you had developed between balancing like just having fun with the genre and experimenting that I think you really came yep. to your own on Mongrels. It, it just felt like that you had reached a comfort level. Did you feel that writing it or? Well, I felt like Mongrels, like for, from, from about the time of Demon Theory, 2005, 2006, until Mongrels, which is 10 or 11 years later, I felt like, I feel like I was two different writers. I was on one path doing genre stuff and another path doing like innovative stuff or literary stuff, like non-genre stuff. And I, I had no problem. I mean, I had no problem maintaining two like, I don't know, careers, if that's what you want to call it, two versions of myself as a writer. But I did feel like two people. I felt like I was split. And then Mongrels was me like suturing myself back together. You know, it was allowing me to use an innovative form with the creatures that are closest to my heart. It was a horror build, but like a delivery that's not the usual delivery. And and so at with Mongrels, like four years ago, I feel like that's when I became a single writer again, you know? And it means something to do it with, with werewolves, which you said is a creature very close to your heart. Mm -hmm. So, and so it had to be, you had to have been circling the idea of doing a werewolf novel for a long time. Yeah. The, the, was it the coming of age aspect that made you say like, now is the time? What, what was it that with Mongrels that said, now is the time? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think a werewolf novel called Bloodlines was the third novel I ever wrote. I wrote it in 1999, right after I wrote Demon Theory. And I wrote it and I decided this isn't very good and I didn't mail it out. My agent read it and she said, eh, whatever, you know, and we didn't mail it out. And then in 2013, I think it was, I had a semester off and I said, all right, I'm finally, I've got enough miles under my belt. I think I can finally um, write that world my love I mean to write. And so I sat down to write and I read about 120 not, 20 pages of a novel called The Lord's Highway, a werewolf novel, and I got and I, I, started, I got to that point, I kind of reevaluated what I'd done. And I realized I'm just looking at pretty werewolves. I'm not telling a story. I'm just talking about werewolves. That's not good enough. I have to be better. And so then I used the rest of that time off to write a comic book, My Hero, and some stories. Um, and then in 2014, um, I got some funding to do a werewolf course. Um, like, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something. And so I blew it all on werewolf, like books, movies, statute, little figurines just everything werewolf I could buy for a thousand bucks. And I gave myself 30 days to cram that all in my head. And so I did nothing those 30 days, but read and watch werewolf stuff. And I finished on December 31st. I had to teach the course starting in the middle of January, but my head was so full of werewolf stuff. I didn't know what to do. And so I sat down on January 1st and wrote a werewolf story. And, um, and then it turned into another story and another story. And then I realized about a weekend, I'm writing a novel. And so 14 days, like at, by the middle of January, I'd written Mongrels. And it, I mean, I didn't even intend for it to be a coming, age, coming of age. I didn't even intend for it to be a novel, but it just kind of happened, you know? 
Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and that, um, that can that that can happen. It can be just real accidental. Like, mm -hmm. like this is not my intention. I just wanted to explore this monster and this creature. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm sure like developing the class like really had something to do with how this the story came together because you spent yeah. that, you know month cramming. Um, yeah. What what was the most surprising? Um, what would be the one that was the most surprising influence that came out of that month, like a movie or a book that you're like that one. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect that one to, to have such an influence. You know, I think it would, I think the most controlling influence anyways would be Wolf Sour, Robert McCammon's Wolf Sour, and also Carrie Vaughn's Kitty in the Midnight Hour. Both of those werewolf novels um, propose that a 160 pound woman is gonna change into a 160 pound werewolf. Like conservation of mass is important. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, werewolves, if there were werewolves, we'd consider it supernatural, but still, for me to believe in a monster, it has to be biologically possible, you know? And for it to be biologically possible, that woman can't turn into a 300-pound, nine-foot-tall werewolf, because where does that extra mass come from, you know? And mm -hmm. Robert McCammon and Wolf Sour, and in the, subs in the, se in the sequel to that, the story collection, I can't remember, uh, Hunter, Hunter, something, something about hunters. Um, um, he, he Robert McCammon is such a careful writer. He's he's insistent upon making his um, monsters real and possible, and so he adhered to conservation of mass. And then Carrie Vaughn does does it as well. And so I just kind of stole from them. And also, what I stole from McCammon was the idea that um, when you're transformed, when you're in wolf form, you age in dog years. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, that that yeah. That Wolf's Hour is 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 an incredible work. It's it's mm -hmm. not my favorite McCammon overall, but um, yeah. And for me, the influence on um, of Wolf's Hour, what like I just for, for me, I had to make sure that we weren't crossing hairs on the whole Nazi thing and the Nazi, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And um, mm -hmm. mine took place so so much longer after. Like a lot of my research went into the like what happened to the Nazis in Argentina and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, but when I read Wolf Sour, it's funny because when I I had read it, you know, once before mm -hmm. just for fun. And when I went back to read it, I just like for me the thing was is he was having so much fun with it, but balancing like I'm taking this seriously mm -hmm. and you should be taking this seriously so I had a similar yeah. thing what? yeah I, no I, I love Wolfstar just as much as you I think but um I agree that my it's not my absolute favorite McCammon my favorite McCammon would be Boy's Life I read I try to read that book about every two years it just I don't see how I don't see how anybody can write anything that good you know well I have a um a McCammon admission Mm -hmm. I have never read Boy's Life because oh. I have been saving it for my next trip to Europe, and I keep not going to Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big book. It'll get you. It'll get you through Europe probably. I have a McCammon admission too, and that admission is years ago. This is probably about fifteen years ago, maybe even longer. I ended up with Robert McCammon's phone number, and I thought I'm just going to keep this. I'm never going to call him. Then about two months later. Um, 10 o'clock at night, I called him and of course got voicemail or answer machine back then probably. And I left this long rambling email about how wonderful a writer is, how much he changed me and influenced me and all this stuff and never heard. I mean, I've met him since then, but I never say I'm that dude on your voicemail. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, and I have read almost every other mechanic. Uh -huh. I have never uh -huh. read Boy's Life because yeah. I've, just, I've been saving it. 
And um, I have a couple of those books. Like I'm a huge John Bruner fan and I saved um, Staying on Zanzibar until like a year and a half ago. And then I finally just said, I, I have to read this. I cannot wait. Yeah. And I yeah. might have to do that considering with everything going on with COVID, I might just have to yeah. read Boys Live. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm saving um, Nabokov. Um, like uh, when I first found, when I first found Vonnegut, six months later, I'd read every Vonnegut and I was like, no Vonnegut for the rest of my life. What am I going to do? You know? And, right. and so then when I found Nabokov, of course I read the Lita first and then I think I jumped into Pale Fire and Panin and I realized I'm going through these too fast. I want him to last for my whole life, you know? And so it, I haven't read a Nabokov novel for probably five years because I'm trying to space them out. I've never read Ada, you know, that's his big, big book. And, um, and I've gone back and read some of his early, like un, his early Russian stuff, I guess, but, um, so we yeah, I'm similar on that because I've had similar thing. Just yeah, that's one of the reasons why Boys Life. I've been saving it for like mm -hmm. because one of the reasons why I thought I wanted to read it on a flight so I could read it all in one sitting, right? And have nothing break it up. Just yeah. just read yeah. it, and that's why I've been saving it. But I I definitely like I've made sure that I've saved a little bit of Lovecrafts. So I've made sure mm -hmm. that until I was doing the podcast, I was saving a lot of PKD. But now yeah, yeah. I've committed. <laughs> yeah I'm yeah and, you know what with p with pkd like i burned through all the pkd like well all that i could find anyways because some of those yeah. old ones are kind of hard to find but you know i think of pkd i've read valis over and over i've read ubik over and over but i think the the pkd i've read the most times is going to be galactic pot healer there's something about that novel that i just can't ever shake and i always go back to the galactic pot healer you know mm. Well, that's one I'm, I have not read, and so that'll be my first time for the podcast. And uh, I have a couple friends that just keep, when I say that, they're like, oh. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, when I started the podcast, I considered myself a dickhead, but I had only read, like, seven or eight of the novels and a bunch of the short stories. So for me, when, when we started the podcast, I hadn't read any of the 50s. And so it was a relative or, or like a revelatory experience yeah. for me and still yeah. some of them like enemy takeover which we just read last month i i hadn't i hadn't read so which was a fun experience but anyway yeah. so um but with with your work and and then um so only good indians like the only good indians like coming after mongrels like um i'm sure you had a little bit of pressure because of the success of of mongrels that you wanted to do a, a really powerful horror novel and um of course you didn't know at the time that this that 2020 was going to be this year of horror masterpieces mm -hmm. um but uh it seems to me without spoilers um but i'm, I'm i don't think i'm giving away anything that isn't in the dust jacket mm -hmm. um it seems to me that you're playing with a kind of a reversal of the stereotypical like um angry native american spirit like trope that's been in in horror and that you're reversing yeah. it with this book um am i right or wrong here no um i mean i don't i don't number one i don't think people are ever wrong when they read your book in a certain way um i know i think this book probably is pushing back against that um like yeah, the, there's so many movies about, oops, we dug up some old Indian bones and now we're all going to die from this monster, this whatever it is, you know, um, mm -hmm. that's definitely something that goes on. If 
not that my intentions count for anything, but what I was trying to do with the only good Indians was I wanted to write Jason Voorhees into a story, but I can't use Jason Voorhees because he's a trademark character. He's registered, you know? And, right. and so I thought I'll just take Jason Voorhees up to the reservation and make him, you know, give him a elk head and we'll see what happens. You know, <laughs> that's basically what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, your intentions is, is, is yeah. very important. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I had to write my review uh, yesterday is because I didn't uh, want my review to be colored by having a conversation. Yeah. With you. Yeah. And so I rushed to get my review done. But it's funny, um, no, that's really interesting because, um, you know, it's funny because recently Stephen King said that he would love to write, a, he said the same yeah. thing. I'd love yeah. to write um, a Jason Voorhees yeah. novel. And, and it's funny because I think that a lot of us, when we're horror writers, we're fans too. And so, um, mm. you know, Richard Matheson famously said the reason why he wrote I Am Legend is he was watching a bad Dracula movie and, and thought to himself, he was yeah. fixing it in his head while he was watching. He was like, yeah. well, what if there was a whole planet of them? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what you do as a, as a writer. Yeah. You know? It totally is. You know, recently I got offered to write some Michael Myers stuff and I couldn't fit it into the rest of the stuff I've got committed to. And so I had to pass on that, which breaks my heart because writing Michael Myers would be so fun. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, um, these chances to do these things, like you know, it, it is a is a fun thing for a writer. But yeah. so the only the only good Indians, like now, obviously, like um, you're from Native American heritage and mm -hmm. uh, um, um, Blackfeet Indian descent, mm -hmm. and so I'm sure that informs all of your work in certain ways. Mm -hmm. But um, this is one where it's unapologetically, um, you know, yeah. in this setting. So, yeah. so obviously, um, there are certain responsibilities for that, you know, in, in writing. So can you t yeah. talk to me about, like, how you felt going into this, like, um, into this book in, in that sense? You know, um, yeah, people talk about how the only Indians is, like, pushing back against the stereotype, taking the knees out of that cliche or whatever and um if it is that's great my goal always with whatever fiction i'm writing is just to do real people you know and but the trick is getting real people on the page does involve cutting the knees out of this cliche you know pushing back against this stereotype and just being accurate you know being accurate and making the person real and engaging that's that's what's most important but to the accuracy does kind of automatically dispel or push away or undercut a lot of the um cliches and stereotypes you know mm -hmm. well and look and for it depends i'm not saying all readers are going to do this but for me mm -hmm. like my specific thing was when i started reading this book and i i, I got about like 30 40 pages into it mm -hmm. and i've read a bunch of your work before mm -hmm. i followed you online all that stuff but it never occurred to me like oh i should know more about the blackfeet indians if mm -hmm. i'm going to read this book mm -hmm. so you know i yeah. I admit, I went and I Googled and I was like, I want to know that, you know, and I learned a bunch about the history of the Blackfeet Indians that I yeah. didn't know. And um, I think that is a fair thing for a reader of this book to do. It's smart, sure. you yeah. know. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and I think for me that um, I appreciate that, or I had the kind of the same experience when I read, uh, the summer Sylvia Maria Garcia's uh, Mexican Gothic is that 
the state in Mexico where it took place, I, I was like, well, if I know a little bit more about it, I'm, I, I'm going to be a better mm -hmm. reader of this book. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, so, um, so I think, um, I, I, I think just before we get into spoilers, like, mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about, um, I compared this book, uh, now I know you were saying that you wanted to, to do like kind of a Jason Voorhees mm -hmm. kind of like, and there is kind of a slasher, like mm -hmm. kind of gore thing going on here. Mm -hmm. But my interpretation of the book was the book that it reminded me of was the how trapped you felt in Pet Cemetery when mm -hmm. you know what's going to happen, you know the direction that things are going, and all these yeah. things are happening, and you can't get out of it. Yeah. Um, that is the pitch that I made to people. What's your pitch for your non-spoiler pitch for the Only Good Indians before we start? No, no. For, first, you're right. I, I love that feeling in Pet Cemetery that you shouldn't bury that thing there because it's going to come back and kill you. I love that 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 the way that we know it and dread it, and we also kind of eagerly anticipate it. You know, um, that's such a good feeling. Um, my pitch for the Only Good Indians is, I guess, four four dudes are out hunting on the Blackfeet Reservation it's the last day of their hunting season. And on the last day, anything goes, they make a decision they probably wouldn't have made otherwise, commit a trespass, walk away from it. Then 10 years later, a victim has risen from that initial crime and is now seeking justice against them. And there's also a lot of basketball. You know? <laughs> Which I'm, I'm nursing uh, an elbow that I got in the post just last night playing with some friends. <laughs> So um, I enjoyed the basketball parts of that. Uh, we'll talk Wonderful. about that in spoilers. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, one of my dreams one day is to have a pickup basketball game with you and Paul Tremblay and a few other, yeah. the other writers that love yeah. basketball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, hopefully one day. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a great pitch. I I would just say that. In a year of masterpieces, um, this book um, kind of skyrocketed to the, to the top for me. Um, I would say before we get into the to the the nuts and bolts of this mm -hmm. one, um, I think this is one of the things that I would say I loved about it is that it is it is a pure horror novel. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, and, and one of the things I loved about it, there's no crossing of any genres or anything else. In my opinion, it is, it is, it is yeah. a pure horror novel. Yeah. And, um, and I love that. And, and I love the feeling of that and uh, how pure it was. So, um, and so from now, so I'm going to make the spoiler warning. So people listening, like uh, if you have not read, you know, pause it, come back. Uh, we'll be here <laughs> when you've read uh, the Only Good Indians, and uh, now we're gonna we're we're gonna talk about the nuts and bolts of writing this. Um, mm -hmm. So let's start with the idea. Where did the 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 genesis of this? Because and I know um, some writers don't like to talk about or don't understand because it, or, or how to explain where the ideas come from because a lot of times it is weird and amorphous, but. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you're, I, I can kind of tell you're a writer that, that does enjoy talking about where yeah. the ideas come from. Yeah. I am too. Um, yeah. Um, the Only Good Indians, you know, the basic, I mean, number one, 
I never see like the big picture at all. I just see little pieces and okay. sometimes I get lucky and they add into something. But um, for me, what happened was my wife and I had just moved into a rental house with, with our kids and um, the living room had, it was a big vaulted living room with a ceiling fan and this spotlight, just like in the novel, that was completely untrustworthy. It would come on at the most random times and it was not beholden to any light switch in the house or any combination of light switches or anything. The bulb was good and it was the weirdest light. We never figured it out in two years we left, lived there. But one day I'm up on a 14 foot ladder and I'm messing with it, trying to figure out why is this so, such a weird light fixture. And of course I realized because I'm not that great of a handyman or a thinker a header that the, I'd left the ceiling fan on. It was like spinning right by my ribs, you know? And, and I looked down through it and I noticed that from the bottom, the ceiling fans are brown from the top. They're all like, the back of a moth they're like a moth swing you know there's like really fine dust you know like which is really a human skin and all right but um but i got to thinking about flicker rate like what is it 24 feet per second like the the rate at which film becomes motion or individual cells become motion and, and um and i thought i wonder how fast that fan's going i wonder if it could be um boring a hole i could see through into something else and and then i thought what's what's the scariest thing i could see through there and for me, it was a dead elk. I don't know why that was. Um, well, I think it's because I've always been an elk hunter. Not always. Since I was 12, I've been hunting elk. And so then I sat down and I wrote the first chapter. Well, I, I thought it was just a scene of um, the house that ran red with Lewis up on that ladder. And which is to say the Ricky prologue was not at the first of the novel initially. It didn't, it, it didn't slide at the first until I was doing revisions. And then I just kept going. I, I owed Ellen Datlow a novella at the time. After after Mongrels, um, I wrote Mapping the Interior for her, and that came out, and she said, give me another one, and so I said, no problem, and I figured this will be this will be the novella I owe her, but between Mapping the Interior and this novel, I had tried to write another novella for her, which turned into a novel, and I'm like, crap, that got away from me, and then I tried again, and it turned into a novel, and I was like, dead burn, it got away from me again, and so with this one, I committed, I said, I'm going to make this go over in novella length. And so I got to the end of the house that ran red and I capped it with a sentence, which made it a novella. And I was so happy, you know, like I finally did, I wrote a novella. But um, then like what popped in my head was another line or an alternate line that could open up into more parts. And, I, and, I, and so I texted my agent and I said, hey, would you rather me write a novella or do you want me to write a novel? And she texted back and said, make it a novel. And so I made it a novel and it just kept opening up and opening up. But there is a lot of me in this novel. Like um, probably the most um, pungent part for me is like what in 2007, I got a elk that season in November. And then come April, I guess it was, I was moving to Colorado from Texas. And so I still had a chest full of um, elk meat and I couldn't take it with me, you know, on the, on the move. So I went up and down the neighborhood I lived in, giving away packages to help me. And the trick was like every animal I, I shoot that I take, every animal I take, I promise them that their meat is going to feed my family, that this is terrible, but it's for, for the ultimate good, you know? And then when I'm giving away that elk meat on my street, um, like moving to Colorado, driving away from that, I was feeling so guilty. I'm like, I don't know if they're going to eat that elk meat or not. I don't know if my, my promise is now broken to that elk, you know? And so I've been carrying that guilt around ever since for like 10 years, I guess. And so that guilt 
plus me being up on the ladder messing with that light in that rental place that kind of added up into the only good Indians for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, being that I'm the, I'm a dickhead, that whole mm -hmm. fan part was very obviously, um, was very PKD, uh, got more influenced by his life and how he would have yeah. moments in the yeah. same way, you know, with like the pink laser beam and all that. Yeah. And these moments of inspiration that, that became, for example, um, the turn of a light off a, a piece of jewelry that became Vallis, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I was very, I'm very interested in how like that, you know, the fan kind of inspires this yeah. whole book, which is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because um, you get into, so, so there is a clear separation between that where you can tell where the novella is and the rest of the book and um i did i have um i do think that the novella part is the strongest part for me of of the overall work in the sense of um there's such fun energy to that first part because lewis and his life is where you get the um that kind of slice of life parts of the novel. Mm. Um, and so, and I will say, and I know I said this in my review, that some of the dialogue in that first novella are almost in a um, Elmore Leonard or like a Fletch, like um, mm. very snappy. And, and, and you do write very good dialogue. Mongrels has great dialogue. But it, that part of this book it's very different from the rest because it, it has a very different feeling and that obviously was intentional, right? Yeah, no, it definitely was like, uh, you know, in my novel Demon Theory to go back, I wrote, I wrote the first, um, I wrote it such that the first movement, Demon Theory 16 would be a slasher. The second one would be a monster story and the third one would be a haunted house story. And I tried to make that all into like under the umbrella of a single novel. And with Only Good Indians, I'm doing the same thing, except for the first movement to me is um, a haunted house story. The second movement is a slasher and the third is a monster, you know? Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, that's the, that idea of um, braiding three different subgenres together into a single horror story is really compelling to me and to, to tell you the truth i would do it every time out if i could get away with it but i can probably only do it about once a decade you know <laughs> well i think it's it i will say this and i already have one friend who read it that was very challenged by this which mm -hmm. is that he had such a fun ride with the first part mm -hmm. that the second two parts didn't work for him as much because he was mm -hmm. like, I need that energy back, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I told him, yeah. um, maybe it's because I've read your work before, mm -hmm. I was kind of prepared for a total shift, but, um, but I knew by the clear separation of how the book was set up that I was looking for tone to change, right? And um, so, so I was more prepared for that. Um, I will say that um, of the three parts, the first part is the one that I technically had the most fun with. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, well, the, the first part has the, the first part has the the first part has the paranoia, and I think paranoia is a really good um, mechanism for horror to pivot on. You know, mm -hmm. the second part doesn't have paranoia. The second part has um, it has like Alfred Hitchcock's definition of suspense. Suspense. We've got characters, and we've got like a ticking bomb, but the characters don't know about the ticking bomb. We know about the ticking bomb. You know, and right. so we know she's always at the periphery. You know. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I'll get back to that, but I still want to focus on the first act for yeah. more too, because I think one of the reasons why the first act is so strong is Lewis as a character is, is um, very relatable, I think. And I think um, his situation, and you did get to experiment get a little bit with this and do things that, um, and I always say this, like when you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, because he is so good at doing certain things, he can get away with stuff that other yeah. writers could never do. Yeah, he I can agree. break the fourth wall. He can talk to the audience. He can do things. Mm -hmm. But if I write a screenplay and try to sell it to Hollywood, they're going to say, "No, no, no, you can't do that." Yeah, and I think Stephen Graham Jones gets away with certain things that other writers <laughs> can't get away with. And for example, Lewis becomes such a relatable character because. For example, he's writing headlines about himself, mm -hmm. you know, and I joked about it in my review saying mm -hmm. like, um, mm -hmm. you know, awkward white boy writer tries to understand <laughs> novel yeah. place at a reservation, yeah. a headline, you know, yeah. but his, the way he does the headlines is such an interesting way into his character. Can you talk to me about where that came from? You know, it's this is the first time I've ever realized this. I think it comes from um, all of the onions, like farcical headlines. You know, I love their their headlines. Like I don't have to read the article; even the headline is it. That's that's all the hilarity I need, basically. You know, and I just love those over the top um, headlines. And I mean, in the novel, in that first part, anyways, Lewis kind of, or I guess I use Lewis's headlines as a way to um, kind of wedge open an expositional hole and get um, his own um, undercutting of himself on the page. You know, um, if I had to do it directly, uh, him like sitting around and mulling over and thinking I'm not a good enough guy, I should be doing this, not that. I think that'd be kind of mopey, you know, but if I can clothe it in something that's vaguely a comical setup, then I think the reader is going to accept it better, if that makes sense. And I think that that's an underrated thing that Stephen King experimented with because he would always try to find interesting ways for the character yeah. to, like, not just the same way of talking to themselves all the time. I mean, he does do that. Yeah. He's written nine million books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but a lot. But I think Stephen King is underrated for his ability. Yeah. And you know, Stephen King, what one of his strengths is he is able to like make physical our interior landscapes, you know, like you see it really well in um, dream catcher. Is that the, what it's called? Dream catcher where you go into somebody's head and it's a, it's all a wall of file cabinets and they have to pull stuff out. And you think that's too simple, but he completely makes it work. And he does that two or three other times in his books, you know, yeah. and, and it makes what would be boring somebody sitting there trying to remember something into an active thing we can read along with. And we're getting fed exposition without feeling like an we're experiencing an info dump, you know, it's really effective. He has a really good instinct for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you're doing a similar thing here with the newspaper headlines. And I think 
but they really worked for me too because um, um, that that's something that could technically take somebody out of a book. But what I think where it worked is is that it didn't take me out of the book. It took me into Lewis, right? Because I'm seeing that he's obviously a very sarcastic guy and that I, I'm seeing the side of him and, it, and it, it informed character for me. And that's one of the reasons why um, I appreciated that with him. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being an attentive enough reader to, to notice that, you know? <laughs> well, I appreciate it. That's why I like to have these spoiler discussions like, um, <laughs> It's funny because uh, I made Josh Mallerman drill down on on one line of dialogue for Mallory. <laughs> um, nice. That uh, it's funny because uh, after we were done, he, he and I it was like, he was like, ah, I never thought I'd ever talk so much about one line of dialogue. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like to do here. Yeah. Um. So now with with um. It's interesting too because, and um, I'm gonna have like a little difference in us as as people. Like, um, I'm a 27 year vegan, and so mm -hmm. like I'm a little different. Like, I, I come to this novel a little different. So I, mm -hmm. you know, being that you're a hunter and and mm -hmm. what, so I think um, uh, Lewis's relationship with his wife um, was actually very important to me because the fact that um, and her name being Peta was kind of funny. <laughs> And, um, and she being, you know, and Lewis saying, you know, lines like, um, I could have been a vegetarian if, you know, in yeah. situations and all that. But that little bit, I think, um, not only was it important for me just personally, because it gave mm -hmm. me a kind of in to like, feel like I can kind of relate to this guy, even though he's like from a totally different place from me. Mm -hmm. Um, it also, I think, was a very important characterization as far as this this whole guilt that the characters carry because they, you know, even though they, they feel that they're ethical hunters, they did this thing as stupid teenagers, and teenagers do stupid things, mm -hmm. right? And teenagers, like... Um, like, even though, like, I've been vegan for 27 years, I can't forget the fact that when I was a teenager, I once threw a rock on a frog. And I'll never forget this. Yeah. It's carried through my whole life is that I remember I'm haunted by the fact that as a teenager, I, I stomped this frog with a rock just thinking I was being punk rock and, mm -hmm. and different. Mm -hmm. And so I related to, even though I'm a 27-year ethical vegan, <laughs> I related to like their behaviors as stupid teenagers that it drives the plot of this whole book. Oh, wonderful. That's, that's so, that's so wonderful to hear. Um, you know, PETA being vegan comes from, um, I was one of my, um, one of my cousins, Raven was coming through town. And so I met him at Applebee's and at the time I had, I was like 10 months into being vegetarian and I'm not vegetarian now and I'd never had been before. And really I thought it was just my excuse to live on French fries. So I was not a good vegetarian and I don't like butter and I don't like garlic and I don't like onions. So there was like nothing I could eat, you know, <laughs> but um, um, anyways, we both went to Applebee's and we're talking while we're looking at the menu and he says he's been trying to be vegetarian for a few months, but he says, I'm going to do it in secret because I'm, um, on the reservation you, you will endure no end of um teasing if you try to be vegetarian and 
And I was like, you know, this sucks. And so we both ordered the biggest hamburgers we could and just feasted out and broke our vegetarian fast or whatever it was, you know, but um, I was always, but so what, with, with PETA, I'm, I was just playing around with the idea of um, Indian is kind of coded as meat eater, whether we want it or not, you know, and we kind of internalize that stereotype. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't a lot of um, Indian vegans. I'm sure there are and, and vegetarians and for ethical reasons, for health reasons, like my sister is, is vegan, you know? Um, and, but um, I think by and large, we're coded as meat eaters, even though you like, which is really a, really because all of America and the whole world thinks we're in a John Wayne movie and all we do is shoot buffalo, you know? Um, right. When really there was there was tribes that lived on fish, there was tribes that grew corn, or all, all kinds of stuff, you know? But we get reduced in the public eye to meat eaters, carnivores, and then we internalize that and we identify with it in, in a, I think, a dangerous way, not a, not a good way, you know, mm-hmm. at all. Well, and then I think that there is, um, being that I came from, come from my perspective, reading The Only Good Indian, is that, you know, and my wife is um, even more militant than I am. Mm -hmm. And so when she saw the cover of the book, Mm -hmm. she was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I was like, no, actually, I think you'd appreciate the point of this book. (laughs) And, um, you know, and uh, it was funny because there is kind of this um, nature's vengeance aspect to, to especially the second act. Um, and I think, you know, the whole aspect of, you know, uh, uh, of this whole thing that haunts these guys because, um, and, and now that I know that, that your story about, you know, processing the guilt that mm-hmm. you were feeling, um, it makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about that transition to the second act now. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, and I do think that um, if we didn't like Lewis, I know, of course, now I'm going back to the first act a bit, but if we didn't like Lewis, um, it wouldn't make the end of the first act so hard. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, it's funny because, you know, and I'm about to do a panel discussion with a few other fans of the book tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, or on Monday. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see because we're, you know, we'll have the perspective of, of being able to talk about it just as readers. Cool. cool. But, um, but, the, but the thing about this book that for me was, is that um, my friend Desmond Reddick, who is a podcaster too, he does uh, Dread Media. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he said that he was like almost having panic attacks about finishing the first act, right? Because yeah. he's like, oh shit, I, I really don't want to see where this goes. And <laughs> and I think that if you didn't like Lewis and Peta, and if you didn't have affection for them, uh-huh. and even Shaney, because, you know, these are characters that, you know, are so rich. And I think a lot of that comes down to the dialogue. Do you have um, influences for that kind of dialogue? Because I can look at that dialogue and see non-genre influences, mm-hmm. um, Elmore Leonard, um, yeah. Shane Black, um, mm-hmm. as, as um, these are dialogue writers that, that uh, yeah. I create. Um, I'm uh, Greg McDonald who wrote Fletch. Um, I love yeah. the fact that the first novel Fletch is almost entirely dialogue. The book mm-hmm. has very few descriptions. Mm-hmm. And, and whenever people ask me like, 
I need help with dialogue. I'm not good at writing dialogue. I always say, read the Fletch books, read Fletch. Books. Yeah. No, I've read those too. They're, I mean, I don't know if I read all of them, but I've read that. I think I read the first one anyways. I was so impressed. Yeah. yeah. So impressed. Yeah. yeah. So are, but, are, um, yeah. are these influences on your dialogue? You totally, and you, you hit it, you hit it perfectly with Elmore Leonard because I've read a lot of Leonard, but also what I'll do is I'll take two or three pages from Leonard of his, of a conversation and I'll input it myself on my screen so I can study how it goes. And what I've found, at least my read on how Leonard is so good with dialogue is it's not actually about what happens between the quotation marks. It's about what happens in the dialogue tags and the, the body language between the quotation marks. And it's really a matter of um, balancing and varying your leading tags and trailing tags and action tags and no tags and body language. And it's about making the conversation full that way. Um, a lot of writers have the ability to make the conversation full. Like I think Shane Black can do it between the quotation marks really effectively. Like you can see that in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or something, you know? Um, but I don't, I don't think I have that kind of ear. I don't have like a Mark Twain ear that can distill things and then make it real, real in that same way. But um, I can balance and juggle and vary the different kinds of tags and the different things going on in the non-dialogue portions of the conversation. I, to me, that's the key to making compelling interactions between characters. And aside from the fact that every interchange is a negotiation, it's a power play on, in one way or another. Somebody's hiding something, somebody wants something, something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and look, um, it's mm -hmm. funny because uh, this is a really nerdy reference. This is going off a little bit, but um, on the recent season of, of Star Trek Discovery, people like really warmed to the new captain, Chris Pike, and people kept wondering, so like, why was he such a good character? And I said to many people, it was like, because I think they focused on how he spoke and they made him speak like, you know, they had him say things like, what shit storm have you got me into today, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they made him real as a character. And I think people, yeah. like, related to him and, and, and I totally agree yeah and um but I think what also Elmore Leonard does and, and you said between the quotation marks and I think this is one of the reasons why people compare Shane Black and they compare Elmore Leonard and it's like mm -hmm. yes Quentin is Quentin Tarantino is very good at dialogue but mm -hmm. um I would put Shane Black up over him any day mm -hmm. yeah not just well, and especially Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and especially the nice guys. And um, one of the things that, and I'm not a big Marvel movie guy. I, I watched the MCU movies, but I recently rewatched Iron Man 3 just because I wanted a Shane Black movie. Yeah. And people forget that in that movie, you're getting Shane Black dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. And um, one of my favorite actors is Guy Pierce. And I think that um, Guy Pierce and Shane Black right there, I wish they would make a movie together, just them, yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. between, there was a couple lines where I was thinking that he had lines of dialogue where Guy Pierce didn't, I didn't really, I could close my eyes and I could just hear what he was saying. And within the quotation marks, so much about even if I hadn't seen the first scene where Iron Man or, you know, Tony Stark screwed the guy over, mm -hmm. I would know that he fucking hated that guy, mm -hmm. that he hated him. I could feel it. 
yeah. and it's between the quotation marks, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and so sure. what I like, and going back to your own work, is mm -hmm. that within Mongrels, within mm -hmm. Only Good Indians, I think one of the reasons why um, the dialogue is so good is, especially in the Only Good Indians, the scene where he goes back to the post office and, you know, and he's having that mm -hmm. whole, there was so much about that post office and mm -hmm. everything where they worked that yeah. I understood that you weren't saying, but I understood. <laughs> I saw the dynamic of those characters on yeah. other days. Oh, good, I good. their dynamic. And I knew about their post office. I could have watched a sitcom about their post office. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, you're, you're right though. With every every dialogue, like I think a lot of um, both movies and novels will have the feeling, or it's almost like they're trying to sell you on the idea that this is their this is these characters' first discussion, and so it it feels like they're almost meeting each other through dialogue when really this discussion has the baggage of the last five months or 10 years or whatever behind it informing it. And, um, and it also, there's also that old like um, screenwriter axiom, right? That if your characters are having dinner and they're talking about the pork chops and the asparagus, and that's all they mean as pork chops and asparagus and that scene is a fail. Um, it's gotta be subtext. They're talking about their marriage. They're talking about their kids. They're talking about their jobs through the asparagus and the pork chops, you know? And, and which is just a way of saying the same thing. There's all that baggage behind every quote, every every line of dialogue. But um, yeah, you have to take that into account that this is not these characters' first time interacting with each other. They've been doing it before. And this this whole place, like the post office or whatever, is a big dynamic that's been rolling well before we're getting a slice of it, you know? And so you've got to somehow intimate that dynamic that's been going on the whole time, which is tricky. And the only way that I come close to ever looking into that is, I write the scene much bigger than it is. And then I go back and pare away all the stuff that I think doesn't contribute to that final feel, you know, um, mm -hmm. which takes a lot of words, but um, it's, it's, it's really, it's the way Ernest Hemingway, like people talk about how, um, how direct and economical his prose is. And really, I think it's just that either has a good eye or good revision, like he'll, he'll describe a bar to you but he won't describe the mirror, the bottles, the bartender, the countertop and uh, everything. He'll describe the way one cigarette is smoldering away in an ashtray and that will evoke the whole bar. And like our job as a writer is to find that one cigarette in every moment and such that it stands in for everything else. And the only way I've ever, I've ever found to do that, besides having a, if, if I was lucky to have an Ernest Hemingway eye, that'd be great. But I think the only way I can do it is I, write a lot of details and then I go back and call out the ones that aren't that cigarette, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a balance. I, I took a class um, at StokerCon one year from David Morrell who wrote mm -hmm. Blood. And um, he used to talk about how when you start a scene, the way he does it is that he imagines the room and he tries to get all like the sounds and the things and, the, mm -hmm. and whatever, but remember you don't have to use all that you just have to know yeah yeah you just yeah. have to know and a couple of years ago at we have a horror film fest we do here and we a couple of us local writers taught a class mm -hmm. on writing horror novels for beginners and mm -hmm. and i remember i spent a long time and i got kind of made, made fun of it for when i was talking about describing the scenes like i used a part of one of my books where um 
one of the scenes was, or, or I just had a tiny line about the neon sign, like that wouldn't stay on, mm -hmm. right? And and I said, like, you know, to me, like that puts me in the place because, like, these imperfections are some of the things that you're going to find in real life, and and I think writers, we tend to notice these things now because as writers, like, you know, I, I try to pay attention to those little details because that's what makes it real. And I think that's mm -hmm. what you're talking about is, mm -hmm. you know, you call away those things and you find the things that connects people to that. And that's the difference between somebody yeah. who, you know, and, and, you know, some writers overwrite and it's fine and that's good. Mm -hmm. Like if you're into that, but, you know, to me, those little details are, are so much more important and, and the things yeah. that go in between. And by the way, I do want to come to, circle back to one thing is that I didn't want to make it sound like I was shitting on Quentin Tarantino and not saying that he isn't a great dialogue writer yeah. because what yeah. I think he does that it's really good is that I love that he builds suspense yeah. through dialogue. And I think that's great. Um, and yeah. I think you do that here in this book a little bit too, because um especially and we'll get to this scene later but the um the basketball game between um that becomes that was very quentin tarantino to me in, in a great way cool. um cool. But, but we'll come back to that so act two yeah. we have the sweat lodge um <laughs> which you know again that's playing with like kicking those stereotypes in the balls um mm -hmm. but i i think um that scene i think that's one of the reasons why i think act two has less of the it, it's it's not as fun because that sweat lodge is is more like a kind of engulfing and and like it, it and it creates this like kind of otherworldly thing that's not as identifiable as the first act right but intentional oh, okay uh, no, I guess it wasn't intentional to me. Like I know sweat lodges, so the sweat lodge is just as real to a house for me. But um, I think the the trick, like Lewis's part, moves over the span of what is it, ten days or something? I, I don't remember. Okay. It's, it's over a few days. Whereas Elkhead Woman arrives at the reservation Friday at noon, and then the novel's over by Saturday at mid. I'm a Friday at midnight, pretty much, or maybe maybe well, it's over the next day, I guess. Um, but sweat lodge massacre is over eight or 10 hours later. So it moves much more quickly. And those are my, uh, that's my favorite stuff to write. Like I've got, let's see, I've got two novels, I guess, that are over a single work shift, like four or six hours. And that's my comfort place to write. I love doing a novel that lasts about an afternoon or an evening. That's my far, that's far and away my favorite thing to do. Um, because then I don't have to juggle. Was that Tuesday? Was that Wednesday? Because that is the hardest thing for me to keep up with. Even if I make calendars and keep lists and all, I can't do that. It always falls apart. I always get it wrong. And my editor and copy editor have to come in and tell me that it's wrong. Um, so Sweat Lodge Massacre for me, that it happens in an afternoon and an evening, was, it felt like a release. Like, oh, now I'm where I like to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, F. Paul Wilson always likes to, make sure the time and everything works uh -huh. and, um i uh i was one of the interviews i did with him and he's my plotting structure yoda i love mm -hmm. paul wilson's structure mm -hmm. and uh i asked him if he could ever write a book that didn't have like dates and times and he was like no <laughs> <laughs> he's like no i'm not gonna do it <laughs> like he has uh, to have that right and so i yeah. think it's cool that you have this like 
tight timeline with it. So, and yes, and that goes into what you said is the difference between your, how you grew up and, and how a lot of the readers come to this is that um, sweat lodge is normal. This is the thing that you've done many times in your life. Um, I can say I've never done a sweat lodge, so, you know, um, and so a lot of the people coming to this, that does feel very different. And, yeah, and it yeah. does, but that's also something that those of us who read for diversity and want to read, yeah. you know, we like to see a window into these things. And so yeah. talk to me about like setting the crux, the second act of a horror novel, like in this setting that's normal to you, that you know mm -hmm. a lot of the readers are gonna be experiencing for the first time. Was that really fun to play with? Um, it was fun, but it's also very fraught because um, I wanted to do whatever I could to resist readers coming for the exotic, you know, because that, that, that's a bad transaction to be part of. Um, and that's why I was continually trying to undercut it and make it less what they would expect on a um, Robert Redford documentary about Indians, you know? Um, and I wanted to like uh, muck it up. I wanted to muck up what they thought it should be, you know, and which is why the drums come through a cop car speaker, a cop PA, you know, and um, and the the scoop for the water is nothing sacred. It's a it's a horse feed scoop, you know. Um, so I want I knew it was I mean I knew Sweat Lodge Massacre Sweat Lodge was going to be the, you know, the pivot point or the kind of place you settle in for a while in that second part, of course. But um, I. I didn't want to make it like I was packaging it up to sell, if that makes sense. Cause I think that would really dirty like my hands and my soul and my guilt and everything, you know? <laughs> right. Well, but it also creates in a very traditional horror way, it creates a situation oh. where everybody's together. Exactly. And, and sets up the, um, you always have to figure out if you do a haunted anything story, like why are they, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just exactly. go? Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. And uh, these guys, yeah, these guys are, they're held in place by their nakedness, basically <laughs> the nakedness and the cold, you know, and they can't go anywhere, but, but you're totally right. Like, um, this is a slasher and slashers always like scream is probably the best example of it. They're always tending towards the big party that we know shouldn't happen that we as audience members know shouldn't happen or readers. And, and so for me, the big party in the Elegant Indians is the sweat lodge where, where you're right. Everybody comes together. Mm -hmm. Well, right, and and I think, um, yeah, and, and it I think it does play good with, it does play well with like your expected horror tropes and mm -hmm. and and and, and um, you know, um, Rudy, the writer Rudy Rucker, used uh, cyberpunk writer, yeah, used, yeah, yeah. I always um, reference a piece of writing advice I got from Rudy, which is um, that. Uh, you should never shy away from playing a power chord well. <laughs> uh, he he um, bought a story of mine one time and I was uh, trading emails with him about it and I said something about how, well, this is kind of tropey and, and, then, and that's what he said to me. He's like, don't, don't ever apologize for playing a power chord well. <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, I got a similar piece of advice. Um, it's from the musical industry anyways. Um, um, but I didn't get it directly. This is, I was watching the Tom Petty documentary. I believe that big old long, like three or four hour thing. And somewhere in there, he says, 
um, can we get to the chorus faster? And that's always what I try to do. That's what I look for and what I read or watch. And that's what um, I try to do on the page as well. I try to get to the chorus as fast as I can, which my, the way I decode that is get to the fun stuff as quickly as possible, which is why, why now the Only Good Indians opens with um, Ricky Boss Ribs outside that bar, you know, because you've got to have the fun stuff early on. Um, mm-hmm. Like for me, the the thing that keeps me from watching a lot of horror movies that I would otherwise watch is I'll look up the description and it'll say a slow burn smoldering story. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out. I'm not even going to read the rest of this description because slow burn is not what I sign up for. <laughs> I want, I want ready or not, you know, I want, I want the fun stuff fast. I want it. I want it. I want tragedy girls. I want Kevin in the woods. I want it hitting the ground running and I can barely keep up. That's what I like the best, you know? Well, I, I can appreciate that. I, um, I personally am a slow burn mm-hmm. fan when mm-hmm. I'm in the mood. <laughs> mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I think that, that there's benefits to some of those things. And I think certain, certain things like um, I get in constant fights with, uh, we have a local a podcast here that's local um, called who goes there. That's a horror movie mm-hmm. podcast. And actually he's, um, one of the hosts of that is the guy that I argued about only good Indians with him. He was the one that said that he loved the first act and mm-hmm. had a hard time with the rest of it. But he's yeah. a guy who constantly argues with me about whether something is actually a horror movie or not. Hmm. And uh, I've actually threatened that we should do a podcast where we just argue whether something is horror or not. Um, <laughs> because, uh, and I had this argument with my old editor at dead uh, Jeff, Jeff uh, Burke, who's the same way. Jeff. He wants yeah. to narrow horror all the time. Uh-huh. And I'm always wanting to expand it. Uh-huh. And uh, so we got this guy who does this local podcast. He and I got into a huge argument about the movie It, it Comes at Night. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And yeah. he said it was too slow and he was so mad mm-hmm. there were no monsters. And me too. I was <laughs> all about the paranoia. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said he was like he got so mad at me because he was like, "There's no monsters. It never came at night." Yeah, that, that was. I walked out of the theater saying the same thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> See, and he'll be so excited to know that you're on the same page. Um, yeah, yeah. And he and I get in these arguments all the time about this stuff. And yeah, it's funny yeah. to me. Um, it's funny to me because. Um, this particular novel, I could see where someone could say that it, that it's kind of front loaded because um, in some senses, because it gets weirder in the back half, right? Mm-hmm. Even though there's a lot of action, there's a lot of things that goes on, yeah. but um, it gets weirder <laughs> yeah. as it yeah. goes, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you know, I can see where, you know, but anyways, in the second act, then the third uh-huh. act comes. Yeah. And um, does the, does the basketball scene happen in the second or the third act? I think third. it's the third. Yeah. It's the third. third. So let's, yeah. Right at the front. Yeah. Because to me, that was very Quentin Tarantino influenced. I can be wrong. No, I mean, I've, wa- I've watched and loved a lot of Tarantino, so who knows? He may be part of what I do. I don't have, I don't have any idea. Um, I really appreciate, like you're talking about how he does dialogue, and I always love, I love like that scene in, um, oh, his his Grindhouse movie, um, Death Proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I love that conversation the women have at the table in Austin, 
and the, the camera is just going in and out among them for like eight minutes or something, like unbroken as near as I can tell. And he manages to make it exciting. And that's the hard part. Like with basketball, like I, in um, The Bird is Gone on Avalon in 2003, I tried to do a basketball chapter and it was going to be two men or two announcers, I guess, but they were both men calling a basketball game and I couldn't make it exciting. So I ended up doing it in some different way. Then in 2007, I built a novel what I, around what I thought was basketball, but I got to the end and the basketball game was not exciting. But the, I think the trick is back then I was still playing ball. Right around 2007, I blew my knee, everything out of my knee. I had to have lots of surgery. Then I ruptured my Achilles twice soon thereafter and I tore my shoulder out. And, um, and I realized that playing ball was put me in rehab so much that it was slowing down my writing and I was having to have to choose writing or basketball. So I quit ball. I have, I don't even shoot free throws anymore because I, when I shoot a free throw, I can't help like doing a jump shot and then it turns into a game and it all, I get hurt, you know? <laughs> so I don't need, I don't go on the court at all. I've got a ball back here somewhere that I dribble around my office when I'm thinking, um, which I'm sure my son in the basement loves, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, um, with only good Indians, because I haven't played ball now for probably 10 years. I think, yeah, I think it's about 10 years. Like, it's like I've got the proper distance from basketball that I can mythologize it. And now the only way I can dribble and shoot is on the page, you know? And so I think that's what I was doing through Denora and specifically through that game, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is funny because uh, especially since the pandemic, I've had to play a bunch of one-on-one just to be able to play with friends that I trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so like a lot of that I could relate to, but um, I was talking to a friend who recently read the book too. And, and I compared this scene to um, the scenes in Inglorious Bastards, the one where the first scene and then the one in the basement where, you know, where everything um, is about the mechanics of what they're saying the little moments of the beats of the game, how it it informs what's coming because um, Denard had, doesn't have information that we do as, as readers. And, yeah. and um, so I was just really impressed with, and I thought to, I kept thinking to myself that since I'm a Hooper, yeah. I wondered, I did wonder to myself, is this going to work for people who aren't Hoopers? And I'm really, I, I asked the two people that are doing the panel with me mm-hmm. on Monday, mm-hmm. neither one of them are Hoopers. So I get to, to have that nice. conversation with them. Nice. Right. Um, because to me it worked, but I was, I kept saying to myself, yeah. I'm a Hooper, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the yeah, end, no, I had no, I totally choice. agree. <laughs> I've heard from, I've heard from a, I've heard from a few people who don't play or don't know at all who like, call all sports sports ball you know that kind of yeah. stuff um and i've heard from people who have said that they were did engage it they never expected to be into a basketball game but they are but i've also heard from people who are like yeah skin the basketball parts because who cares about basketball you know <laughs> right yeah look i would i'm target audience i grew up in indiana um, <laughs> oh wow I, yeah i had no choice blue i my i'm from bloomington indiana my dad was an iu professor so oh wow We've been yeah. IU season ticket holders since the year we won with Isaiah. And yeah, uh, wow. Yeah, my family. So I, I actually was at the game where Bobby Knight threw the chair on the floor. Oh, wow. As wow. a little kid, I was in fourth grade. Wow. And um, 
so I I am a basketball nerd and yeah, uh, yeah. and so Wonderful. for me like that yeah. totally works but um, wonderful wonderful you know you know and in, in that basketball scene you you I mean the, you see the first in, interchange like somebody makes a point and then we fast forward to like they're deep in the game they're like 15 or 16 points in you know and mm-hmm. I want to do those intervening 14 or 15 points but I realized that I'm just doing that because I love basketball, you know, and I, and not everybody is going to love basketball like I love basketball. And so I made myself jump over all the meat, meat to get to the end, you know, and um, maybe that was a kindness to do to people who don't like basketball. I don't know. But, um. Well, I had a situation just um, uh, my, my best friend that I hoop with here in town, my buddy Nate, and I used to work with them. We don't work together anymore, but He's the number one guy I play one-on-one against. And like, I told him that before I play games with my other friends, I have to play with Nate because he's a good defender and he makes me better when I have to play one-on-one with him. And I had this situation with my wife yesterday where um, I ended up playing with mutual friends of ours yesterday and I played a Mm two-on-two. And as soon as I got home, I had to call Nate and tell him like what happened you know, when I was playing yeah. with mutual friends of ours. Yeah. And she was like, why? He doesn't, he doesn't care. And I'm like, no, no, no. He absolutely would care. <laughs> and I was, I was telling her, because I made a shot where I did a crossover that I have missed a thousand times with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I made it. <laughs> Right, and I, I drained the. I, well, it was it? I didn't drain it. I hit it off the backboard, but I yeah. had to explain to her that it was like Nate wanted to know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. But I made yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And 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 she couldn't understand why it was so important to me. <laughs> and I called him up and and told him that I made this shot, and I think yeah. the scene, um, like that when you were talking about the transition of when you had them at 18 what was that 18 yeah. to 14 or 18 to 16 yeah somewhere up there i'm not somewhere sure up there. Yeah. But i you'll just know that as a reader when i saw the score when i got to that mm-hmm. that i literally sitting in my chair reading said oh shit <laughs> i said oh shit <laughs> they're balling right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I'm a be target audience here, and, <laughs> you know. Um, but but that worked yeah. because I was like, "Oh shit, here we go!" Oh, wonderful. Well, you know, my my one of the courts that I grew up on is exactly the court they're playing that duel on. It's it was just a utility pole with a backboard hammered straight to the utility pole, you know, and a little bitty pad of concrete. And I'm I distinctly remember. Um, going in for an aggressive layup just on my own with imaginary defenders and having to scrape my back down that utility pole and getting like creosote splinters all in me and stuff but it was worth it if you make the shot you know <laughs> that's what matters <laughs> well it's like um i'm a trailblazer fan and because i've mm-hmm. lived in portland and damian mm-hmm. lillard is obviously yeah. a player he's amazing yeah, he is amazing and he always talks about that court that he grew up on where they had the that he learned to shoot on the 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 tied to the tree the, mm-hmm. the hoop that they made tied to the tree and um you know that shot that he made in, in the bubble to get us in where the 
bowel bounce like super high yeah. down. Yeah. And he was he was talking about how much he thought about he had a friend who had recently passed away and he was thinking about that hoop, that childhood hoop, and wow. how like it just he knew it went in. You know. Wow. And wow. Um, so when you were describing that chord, it's, it's something that I could relate to as, as yeah. well. Yeah. Because I knew reading that, I was like, oh, that, that's Stephen <laughs> Jones' chord, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I have, we have one of, we have a park in Bloomington, Indiana, where I grew up, Bryan Park. Yeah. And um, my father recently passed away and I was having to go home a lot. And um I, it was amazing to me that every time I'd go to Bryan Park and shoot in that park, uh -huh. I'd be like, why can't I shoot that good where I live now? <laughs> I'm like, I shoot amazing when I'm on that court. Because <laughs> it's still there. What is yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah. we can hoop talk all day, but um <laughs> so the the only good <laughs> the only good Indians. Mm -hmm. Um let's let's finish off with um mm -hmm. How did you, when you got it as a completed novel, three acts and you, and you got it, the editing process, how much did it change from first draft to, to the final? Uh, immensely. I mean, number one, my original title was Where the Old Ones Go, which I thought was kind of a Lovecraftian title myself, but um, now it's a chapter title. Um, the biggest way it changed was for the first draft and for almost every draft after that, except for the very last draft, um, the house that ran red was in second person, which is revealed in the very last line to be dramatic monologue. It's been somebody talking to, it's been Elkhead woman basically talking to Lewis, you know? Um, but when I turned it into the editor, he said, I see what you're doing here, but it's not working. And I'm, you know, so I'm all heartbroken like you get, you know, and when you, when somebody tells you the truth. <laughs> and, um, right. and so I went back into it and tore it down and, um, made it third person which as you know is not as easy as just changing he to you you know or you to yeah. he it's it's a lot more substantive than that and i discovered a lot of cool things in there while i was doing it and i guess the big ways it changed was i put in a chapter where um lewis calls cass and gabe you know because i needed to get their names on the screen before the big flashback thing and the other big way it changed was when i got into the sweat lodge massacre i realized that ricky's chapter um I forget what it was called back then, but Ricky's chapter could go a chapter ahead or it could go a chapter behind and it didn't matter. It didn't change anything. And I realized, um, that where I, I thought, do I just need to pull this chapter out? If the chapter's not locked in, then it must need to be thrown away. And so I got to thinking about the slasher, how the slasher is built and, um, how the slasher, slasher is structured basically. And I, and I plugged all my like distillations of every movement of the Lincoln Indians into a slasher scaffolding. And I realized that I was missing the most, one of the key components of a slasher, which is the initial blood sacrifice, where you see two counselors killed by a blade and you don't know what's going on. Or like, and it follows that girl who runs out of the house and then we fast forward to her on the beach all jumbled up and you know, everything that, that I was missing that moment in the story. And so I kind of just took the novel and like tilted it and that Ricky chapter slid all the way to the front and it totally um, satisfied that blood sacrifice. Um, convention you had to do in the, in the in the slasher um those are the big ways it changed between initial drafts and final drafts mm -hmm. well let me tell you something about um i'm going to give you one of the best compliments i could ever give you about the only good indians which is 
obviously you can see this is a library book. I got mm -hmm. this from the library. Um, when I, when, <laughs> when I finished reading this, one of the first things I said to my wife was, well, I have to buy this book <laughs> Thank you. Thank because you. I'm going to be rereading this and I'm going to be studying this book wow. later. And I know I said this in my review. Um, I don't think this is just a book that's going to be read. read. I think it's one that's going to be studied and taught um, because I think um, there are layers to it that, that, that are working. And of course, now that we've had the conversation and I've seen some of the nuts and bolts, mm -hmm. uh, I had the same experience with both um, my recent interviews with Tremblay and Mallerman about their recent books where I was like, holy shit, I'm gonna have to go back and read it now that I've talked to them. <laughs> well, thank and, you so much. If, if, that, if that's true, that people keep reading it, then they'll come back to you and I talking about it. And that'll be one of their things they focus things through. That'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, but, but for me, like, the the compliment that I'm, that I'm really trying to give you in the sense of that, um, I definitely know I did not achieve, I didn't get everything. This is a book and all the best books to me are the ones and my uh, co hosts on Dickheads give me a hard time about this because I changed my ratings after we talk about like when I rate, we always, you know, rate like, um, you know, like, uh, you know, um, with Man the High Castle, I would like, I rated that book for Grasshopper Lies Heavy out of five, you know, or, or whatever. And I always change my rating when we talk about the book and they get pissed off at me because they're like, no, that's not what you thought when you first <laughs> finished it. But to me, the best books are ones that the more you think about it, the more you you read it, um, you you change your views, you think about it. I read a book earlier this year. Um, it's a generation ship called The Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon. Yeah. Um, and I did not like that book when I was reading it. Yeah. When I was reading it, I was like, uh, I am not jiving with this book. I cannot handle this. I'm not getting into it. And then I started writing my review about it and I started thinking about it and I ended up going back and rereading the last 100 pages because my thinking on it completely changed when I started writing about it. Oh, interesting. And I ended yeah. up liking the book and giving it a good review when I admit in the first hundred pages, I almost quit and was like, I am not going, this book is not me. And part of it is that I'm a space nerd and yeah. made no attempt to make, uh, or no, she, uh, non-binary. Yeah. They made no attempt to write the book in a, um, with any kind of realistic space, anything. And I got yeah. annoyed with it and got mad with it. And when I let that go, and when I thought about the book later, I enjoyed it. Wonderful. Wonderful. The Only Good Indians is a book that um, I really loved the first act. I was totally feeling it. The second yeah. act, I was like, yeah, this is not, I'm not loving this like I was. Yeah. And then yeah. there were moments in it where I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm getting this. And then I was, I was turning back pages and I was rereading sections. Mm -hmm. And 
I like books that make me think later. How do you feel about the difference between a book that the first time you, you read a book and, and later? Are you, are you okay with that? I, I am. Like, I, I think um, the, I think, like somebody told me once, the definition of literary is that which you can return to time and again and unpack it more and more. And I do think we unpack things differently with every um, experience of it, for sure. Um, at the same time, like, um, say I'm reading Hemingway Hills in the afternoon. Is that, no, that's, that's my story. <laughs> Why, the Hills Like White Elephants, Byron X Hemingway. Say I'm reading that for the first time ever with no context, it leaves me dry. But then when somebody tells me these two people are having a discussion about a possible abortion and I read it through that lens, it has a lot more dynamic. And, I'm, and I do kind of like that story now that I know that. And it's possible if I'd read it back in 42, 30, whenever it came out, that, um, that I, would have, I would have got those references, you know? And so it's like all these years later, I need a professor to tell me that right there is code for abortion. And I'm like, oh, this opens everything up. And, and I do like the book more now for that reason. And, you know, lately um, with audiobooks, I go back and revisit a whole lot of books that um, I haven't read for 20 years, you know, and I'm finding that I like them in different ways than I used to. And I notice different things and they, they're complete in a way they weren't complete before. And I'm, I'm really liking that experience a lot. So, I'm all for second, third, fourth, fifth, 20th readings that um, you have a different read. Like the you who was 22 who read it might've been, oh, well, this isn't very interesting. The person who is 40 who reads it is like, this is the best thing ever. I think that's wonderful. And it doesn't have to be like 18 years intervening. It can be like two minutes intervening, you know, cause we change all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm having that experience with doing dickheads because Mm -hmm. um, I know so much about Phil's life now and his mm -hmm. process that like reading each of the books now is totally different. Um, like for example, my favorite is Three Stigmata and Three Stigmata is a completely different book if you know the conditions he was <laughs> writing mm -hmm. it in. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes it totally different. Even yeah. my least favorite of PKD's books, which is hands down The Cosmic Puppets, mm -hmm. um, like we had an amazing time talking about it for the podcast. And even though I gave that book two stars, there was a part of me that was like, eh, I really, I really do appreciate that we could talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For and sure. I think even, you know, and there's things to be learned and there's nothing wrong with um, not connecting with a, a, mm -hmm. a particular book. That doesn't mean, not every author or book like, I don't expect yeah. everybody to connect with everything I do, and I don't expect everybody to yeah. connect, you know, that happens. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm just happy when people give my stuff a chance. I'm like, well, thanks for thinking about it for a moment, you know, <laughs> whether, they whether they like it or not, you know? Well, right, and and, and I think, um, look, um, it's important to, it's important for every, everybody to stay humble about these things because, like, everybody, and it, and I think that's one of the things, because I think writers, some, some writers make the mistake of reading too closely the bad reviews and those things. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's got to be balance. You got to be able mm -hmm. to understand that not everyone's going to get it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And yeah. don't, don't read too high. Don't read too low. Yeah. But yeah. it really, if it, oh no, go on, go on. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Yeah. Um, but to, just to uh, kind of put a bow on this. Uh, yeah. 
It's, I, man, I could talk to you all day about the process of this book because, like, God, I loved it. Um, Thank you. Um, this, so you were saying too that, like, because I read into it that it was a reverse. Like, to me, um, I as we talked earlier about Shane Black, my Shane Black's one of my favorite writers of any kind of medium. And I love, he says that the, the fundamentals of storytelling are parallels and reversals. And I, I come from the school of parallels and reversals. And so one of the things for me, the reasons why this book works for me is there are parallels and reversals all over the place in this book. Mm -hmm. And to me, and you said that you didn't really intend for this, but for me that the whole idea of it or the thing that I grabbed onto is that it felt like a reversal of the, that trope of the, the angry Indian spirit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how, just how do you feel about, you know, just because I'm the guy you're talking to, <laughs> that was my take, the, the reversal. Yeah. What are the reversals that you see going on and parallels and reversals in this story? And then, yeah. Um, the big reversal for me, or the one that I most consciously built in was, um, who dies falling off the ladder, which is really a dramatic thing, not a narrative thing. But um, that to me was, those are the most fun moments in any story I'm telling are, it's like a structural, it's a structural trick really, you know? Um, like and my example right now is 310 from Yuma because I just read it and watched it or watched both versions. Um, that's a movie that has a herd of cattle at the front and at the end it's got a herd of cattle and which is really a parallel like if we're talking parallels and reversals you know but for me it's like bookends but they mean different things and the first thing it's kind of like a form of oppression and the second thing it's a saving grace and those are my favorite movements. I love those um, turnabouts and narrative. They give me so much pleasure and that's what I was trying to do with the ladder and um and uh, you know another i guess another example would be when um gabe is not supposed to be hunting anymore his hunting privileges have been revoked denora sees a little hank of black hair flying up from his bed and she thinks he's hunting again and it turns out he's being hunted by that thing that's in the bed of his truck you know um that to me is a um sort of a reversal um and I, those are my favorite things to do i love that kind of stuff forever and ever you know and not everybody picks up on it which is fine of course um it, it means that i probably didn't balance it right for everybody to take in or whatever and that, that definitely happens but if it works for a few people I'm happier than i could be you know <laughs> well no i mean i the reversals are and the parallels are all over the place in this book for me and that's um you know, it's funny because like I always, um, that, that class that we taught a couple of years ago here for the film fest, like mm -hmm. um, all the people that came out of it that I still stay in touch with, they um, always joke, they always make fun of me because they see online, like whenever I'm reviewing movies that I really like or talking about books that, in all the book reviews that I write, that I tend to always look for those parallels and reversals because mm -hmm. to me that, that is the, um, that is the, that's what makes a story drive, drive a story. And, and yeah. that's, a, that's what works for me personally. And I, I look for those as well. And you know, the two things, the two main things I look for in anything I read are um, sincerity and intentionality. And what the parallels and reversals indicate for me is that this is intentional. And, um, and so I guess by saying, I'm looking for intentionality. I am looking for parallels and reversals because that means that 
this person um, either has wonderful instincts or um, a lot of structure, structural ideas in their mind. Either way, it works. It doesn't matter which one is in their head. It's on the page is what matters. But yeah, that's what I look for. And, you know, talking about Dick, what I get from Philip K. Dick is sincerity. I feel like every time he puts pen to paper, even though he's just dashing something off because he needs a check, this is one of four novels he does this year, I feel like once he gets on the page, he's trying to save his own life, you know? And I love that feeling. Yeah, and even when he misfires uh, or he's, you know, writing stories that aren't as great, you can tell that he, um, uh, he's sincerely trying to tell the story. He's like, yeah. Yeah. he wants to, um, you know, and it's funny because sometimes like Zap Gun was totally a check. Zap Gun mm -hmm. was totally like, uh, and he mm -hmm. ended up not writing the idea he originally pitched, but, mm -hmm. but you, you know, for me, it's funny because that's one that doesn't work for a lot of people. I love Zap Gun. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, and you can tell, um, you know, with a lot of these books that he wrote in that period when he was writing in the hovel, <laughs> when he had that little mm -hmm. shack on the road, mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, he is writing for his life there, you know, mm -hmm. and he is doing that. And yes, you can see that. So I, I, I'm there too. And um, look, and I, and I think, um, you know, for me, uh, Only Good Indians and, and Mongrels, I think one of the reasons why I think, um, look, and you've been writing for a long time, you've got a lot of work out there, but I think the reason why these two books are really catching on is that there is a, um, a feeling of sincerity with the characters that people are connecting to and on, 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 a, on another level. Um, Wonderful. Look, like, like The Least of My Scars, for example, is a book that I love as an experimental one with the um, mm -hmm. agoraphobic hitman, right? That's the, the mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. which is a really neat concept. Um, it's really <laughs> interesting to be like, how's he going to do that? Yeah. But the reason why I think these two books are connecting so much more is it's not yeah. about like the exercise of writing. It is that it is the the story is bleeding off the page. And those of us who can dig in and like that stuff are gonna mm -hmm. find the writing stuff, but the people who aren't as interested in that, who just wanna read a story, they're, they're really gonna be compelled by the characters. Oh, wonderful, thank you so much, thank you. All right, Stephen, um, I do wanna stick around after we're done recording for a minute to talk about potential dickhead stuff, but, uh, yeah. but I, uh, I, I really appreciate your time, I think. Um, this book, um, I think people are going to get a lot out of, um, you know, it's, that's one of the things is the conversation between the generations. There's going to be a writer coming up um, who this book is going to speak to them, a young person, and someday we'll get the next, the, the next version um, and uh, of uh, the next generation who, who said yeah. like, hey, Stephen Grime Jones is the one who spoke to me. And uh, I hope that we gave them some insight into uh, how this book happened. Thank you. It's been a wonderful time talking, man. Yeah, I, um, I uh, really enjoyed having you. Thanks for coming on.